Hello, and welcome back to episode 12 of the Booze, Booms, and Busts podcast. My name is Boaz Shoshan, and I'm joined as ever by Sam Volkering, where we shall be consuming beer, rating beer, and discussing current market events. Now, Sam, how are you getting on, and what are we starting with this week? Uh, I'm getting on pretty good. Thank you, Boaz, this week. Um, ready for a couple of beers. I'm not going to lie. It's Friday afternoon and it's time to crack some. And uh, we're starting off this week with one called the New Alliance from the Burning Sky Artisan Brewers and Blenders. Um, they're located in Furl. Am I pronouncing that correct? Furl or Furley? I don't know. I always get I always get names of places in this in this country wrong. Um, oh, what was yeah, it? It's either Furl or Furley. I'm not, I'm not sure which it is actually. <laughs> yes, like come, when you're in Australia and you come over here and it's like you see all these places like uh, you know I don't know Worcestershire and Gloucestershire and all those things. You don't necessarily say Shire, you sort of say Shire. So when you right. land here and the first time you ever come to this country, it's like. Um, and you don't even say, you don't say Worcestershire, it's like Worcestershire. And everyone just looks at it like he's definitely a foreigner. <laughs> so, Furley or, or, or Furl, I'm not sure. Someone someone correct us. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, we have that. Uh, it is quite nice, quite nice can, I'll say. 4.5%. Uh, unfiltered and unpasteurized, but it may contain sediment. I always like ones that may contain sediment. I've always got some weird flavor going on in those. Um, and it's got a uh, at the front. We've got an image of uh, two fellas with uh, two some well rather contrary uh, statues in the yeah. background. Uh, we'll put it. We'll leave it there. I think uh, enjoying a uh, a couple of beers. And it looks like so. This is a, uh, the alliance it's referencing is Burning Sky and also Brasserie de la Seine, a uh, a Belgian beer that you may well have had a few beers from before. They, those also actually have some pretty bright and interesting labels. But uh, yeah, let's give, give this a go. And to, as a subject to start us off with, as it is New Alliance, uh, Sam, you may well have heard of this. I imagine you have, in fact. The, uh, the prospects, the potential for Japan to join the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. So the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, for all listening, you, as you probably already know, is the uh, spying operation where five countries, uh, mostly, mostly in the Anglosphere, so you're looking at the UK, the US, uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, and Canada uh, all get together to uh, spy on each other's citizens, uh, as it were, uh, share the information together, So, which makes it not illegal. So, you know, if the, uh, if the Americans are spying on the UK, then it doesn't class that and then giving the information to Her Majesty's government. It doesn't quite class as, uh, you know, the Her Majesty's government spying on its own citizens and vice versa. So uh, there's all, all that th sort of dynamic going on. But of course, they do share lots of intelligence on uh, adversaries. Uh, and this makes it a very, very strong, quite interesting alliance between, uh, it, well, in the Anglosphere. And Australia, in fact, Sam, is uh, one, of the, one of the key uh, sort of nodes in this network because the Australian government is not nearly so restrained on its espionage laws uh, as uh, the UK or the US. So you guys can uh, get away with all manner of uh, spying malarkey, uh, which we cannot, which I've always found quite, quite interesting. So, uh, you know, it's you guys who uh, have, uh, I think, uh, an incredibly important role with alliance. But the, the prospect of a new alliance with, uh, with Japan joining in uh, sounds very interesting to me. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Five Eyes might soon become uh, Six Eyes. Uh, but you, you're right. Um, Australia is actually a very important part of that uh, Five Eyes network, mainly because of the facilities uh, that they've got. Uh, most sort of one of the more well-known um, facilities in Australia is called Pine Gap, um, which is a, a satellite surveillance base up in the Northern Territory in Alice Springs, which is literally like, pretty much bang smack in the middle of Australia. So it's hot, it's far away from everything. It is literally kind of the arse end of Australia. <laughs> if, if, if Australia was bent over right in front of you. And, um, but, you know, and in fact, bringing up Pine Gap, um, if for anybody listening, there is a fascinating TV series it's 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 a fictional TV series, but fictional in the sense that it's just a TV series. But it's called Pine Gap and is set at the Pine Gap surveillance base, and goes into some stuff about 
um, US and China and Australia and stuff. So just as a side note, anybody listening, go and watch Pine Gap, the ABC uh, TV show. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. But um, yeah, you're right. You know, they, they share a lot of information. Uh, Australia, so it Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the US and the UK, which I always wondered why it was those countries and and we there wasn't really somebody as a part of that from Asia really in that sense and so it kind of makes sense that out of all the countries in that region Japan is probably keen to join or that Five Eyes are keen for Japan to sort of join the throngs seeing their proximity to a lot of the Asian um, you know regions like obviously China um, Korea. Uh, Indonesia and, and and around there, so it's not hugely surprising. Um, and there's there's been you know strong ties, military and espionage ties between uh, Japan and and their Five Eyes nations for some time. So, you know, I think it's it's at, at this point in time with geopolitical tensions, it's an interesting development. I think that probably isn't unexpected, but the timing of it is probably more unexpected. I would say. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think it's very much a sign of the times that uh, such a uh, new alliance could be made. Uh, the, the, the idea that it, it's happening now of all times uh, that Japan wants to join, uh, I think is very much indicative of the, the state of uh, affairs between um, you know, the Five Eyes nations, ultimately, and, uh, and uh, Southeast Asia. The, uh, the, the rise of China, of course, and uh, I think Japan really wanting a bit of help when it comes to um, defending and ensuring stability in the region, uh, I think this is quite indicative of that. That you know they they really do want alliances uh, when it comes to uh, ensuring that stability and making sure that China doesn't expand uh, and doesn't achieve its imperial ambitions uh, as much as it does. Personally, I think it would be terrific if Japan did join the the Five Eyes. I think it'd be great to have uh, a six eyes network. Uh, considering uh, Japan's role in in the uh, in the region, and considering their current uh, sort of strategic uh, vision, uh, and they're you know just a, just a, a good nation to partner with, I think it would be very good to have them on board. However, from people who I've spoken to uh, on the matter, uh, there is a bit of a barrier here, and I'm not talking about language or anything like that, but the um, the large influence uh, of the yakuza within the japanese government <laughs> is something that would uh, could really uh, compromise it because there are actually in terms of some of the um the uh, sort of symbiotic nature of the of the japanese government and when it comes to enforcement and crime and things like that there are an awful lot of ties sort of peaceful ties between the yakuza and the government and this would make things uh, this is something that would really compromise wow. uh, such an uh, an attempt to get uh, to get six eyes status, so uh, I think that that's obviously a massive roadblock in the way. I have no edge in that uh, arena at all. This is the only things that I hear. Uh, but personally, I, I think it'd be really good to have uh, to have Japan on board. Um, similar to you know, it's all there's already so much cooperation when it comes to defence uh, between uh, Japan and uh, and Australia, for example, or Japan and US. With Japan, they're getting a lot of F thirty five Bs. Um, you know, I think it's almost natural for uh, for there to be a little more integration when it comes to the intelligence side. But we'll have to wait and see how how it goes. Um, uh, but it seems really interesting. Japan seems to be such a such a major ally mm. for um, so many sort of Western democracies. Uh, it really is a really is an interesting and of course utterly unique nation with all manner of um, all manner of quirks and uh, all manner of advantages uh, and the way it's sort of it, it's expanding its own military um, it is good to it's good to have such a an ally on your side rather than not on your side um, but of course you know this all come out coincides with uh, with Abe uh, saying he's uh, he's, he's no out. longer yeah. no longer fit for service so what do you make of all that Sam <laughs> well, how, I mean how how old is he I'm not even sure how old he is I didn't think he looked all that unwell, personally. I'm going to have to look that up because he didn't. He doesn't seem to be um, that old or that out of health. Uh, he's 65, so it must be something. Yeah, I mean, by, by uh, U.S. presidential standards, this is really very young. Well, that was kind of my point: is that he's 65, and he's kind of said, "You know what? It's it's time for me to step aside because uh, I've got some health reasons." And then it makes me wonder. How the hell 
It's like in the US, you know, you have to be over 70 to even apply for the job these days. <laughs> Um, and 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 the the more you show early signs of dementia, the better you are for probably <laughs> gig. Um, but yeah, I mean he's he's been a staple of of Japan for God for how long now? For almost feel like fifteen years, maybe a bit yeah. bit less than. Yeah. And uh, was it the Ab Abenomics? Abenomics <laughs> the popularity indeed. of Abenomics. Yeah. Um, which, which ironically is probably the direction that the U.S. is is heading. Yeah, Trumponomics, yeah. Trumponomics, although I'm not necessarily sure you could put it all down to Trump. This this started back, really, I think in in 2008. But you know, obviously, with everything that's happened this year, uh, <laughs> the escalation of modern monetary theory is sort of taken to a to a whole new level. I mean, you look at well, the sequels. Sequels are rarely better than the original. Well, the, there's a there's a very long debate about that uh, that, that that could be had for if we were to do a movies and TV podcast. Um, <laughs> but in, in politics, in, in general, I I agree that the sequels are rarely better than the original, save for Terminator Two. I would I would argue, but that again, winner, that's for a different podcast. But you're right, you know, the second time around, things are usually worse because uh, it's it's yeah, and, and in this situation, it, that's absolutely the case with the with the US and. I mean, you know what? It's funny when you talk about the US and I, I, I quite like the United States of America. I always liked visiting. I was like going there. Every time I did, everyone was quite friendly and welcoming and it seemed to be like a nice place to visit. I couldn't think of anywhere I would, would, would rather avoid right now than the US. When you look oh, at it, <laughs> it's, it's like a war zone at the moment when you see, I mean, I, I know not all of America is like that, but it's a, it's a crazy place when you consider they're going into an election in November. They, the, the economy's in, a, in the, in the shithole, really. The stock market is at all time highs, um, but concentrated really heavily. Like we were talking about um, last week into really just a handful of really tech companies. Um, and, and then you've got, you know, pockets in States that are basically utter war zones with vigilantes killing people and um, martial law kicking into and curfews. It's, it's one of the most bizarre places at the moment, I think on earth. Um, and, and, and then at the same time, you wonder how they going to pull, how they're going to pull it all back from here. Now, how do you pull back the kind of money printing that's been going on? How do you, does, does the stock market just keep on keeping on? Um, do, do they get, you know, social unrest under control or does it blow up? The, at least the good thing with Japan is, is they could um, shit can their economy into oblivion. And in general, the people are going to be pretty complicit with it. <laughs> You're not going to, yeah, I can't remember the last time there were mass protests on the streets of Tokyo. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is I a mean, cultural the, quirk, maybe more than anything. Yeah. The, um, the incredible sort of, uh, incredible tightness of the of the culture in japan uh, it does seem to be something that it, it's the trait that you i i mean it doesn't seem to exist anywhere else and uh, it, it probably is a good thing considering the amount of extreme monetary policy goes on that it, it goes on in japan because i feel if it occurred anywhere else there would be much more um mm. friction uh, involved in its uh, in its rollout um, and so it kind of makes sense that Japan's managed to get away with all of this for so long. Well, Bank of Japan has been able to get away with all this for so long uh, because, you know, the, the citizens are, um, are so compliant with all of it. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, there's all manner of ways where we, can go, we could go from there. I think, um, you know, with Abe stepping down, do you, do you think that's uh, due to some murky stuff going on behind the scenes? Or do you think this is, once again... Uh, Japan doing things the right way, where 65 is actually a good time to get out of politics. Or do you, do you think that? Do you think it's um, Abe just being being a uh, you know wiser than your average Western politician, uh, or less power hungry perhaps? Or do you think that this is uh, because um, either you know there's going to be some big bad revelation coming out about him, or do you think uh, he realizes that um, things are kind of you know, maybe slipping out of his control or something? You know, it's it's interesting. I think he I think he uh, genuinely does have some health reasons, 
but there's been plenty of people in office. Well, that's not that's that. never stopped a Western that's, politician, has it? That's right. And so I wonder if it is. I mean, I, I have no doubt he's probably genuinely got some health issues, but I probably question whether or not that would be enough to quit. But at the same time, you're right. Maybe that is what should be done in this situation. Um, and and the, you wonder if, you know, in the Western world, if they really, if it is more of a power thing, um, whereas in Japan, maybe, you know, the, the, the way the culture's really built, it's almost more of a uh, respect um, to, to the country, which would be unheard of in politics. Um, or maybe it is, maybe it's sort of a hidden form of uh, seppuku, you know, the, um, the old Japanese ritual suicide disembowelment where he's like, right, I'm, I'm out of here and I'm, I'm going to do it this way. Um, whereas, you know, secretly behind closed doors, there's maybe a lot more going on and he's been slowly walked out because of, uh, because of failing politics. But you never, I mean, you just Well, let's hope t- not, mate. <laughs> What's that? Well, let's hope not. Yeah, well, yeah, let's, let's hope not. But like you said, you know, Japan's economy's just been in this um, increasing debt spiral for as long as I can almost remember, to be honest. And, and it, it is, like we said before, it just looks like the US is going to continue down that pathway. Um, it, Japan 2.0, it's, um, except like we say, the sequel's just not going to be any better than the, uh, than the original version of it because you, I can't see how the US comes out of the economic situation they've got themselves in any time in a short period of time. You can't unwind that kind of debt without, well, you can't unwind it without, without defaulting. They're not going to default and to grow out of it um, is going to take decades. But then like, you know, we say it, you know, that if it continues to continue on, does that mean that the U S markets have actually just entered a new bull market? I mean, imagine if that's the case. Imagine if the U.S. markets are now just entering a bull market. You know, if uh, if anyone is going to be able to do something magical with debt, it's going to be the Japanese, right? <laughs> I mean, considering their vast indebtedness and their extreme monetary policy actions, if anyone's going to be able to do something where they can perform some kind of alchemy and find some way of uh, changing the nature of debt or changing our definition of debt or how we feel about it or what we do with it or how we service it. It, it, You would imagine it would begin in Japan considering their state of indebtedness. Um, You know, someone, it was a conversation I had actually, it was a a couple of years ago, really. Uh, It was with a fund manager and uh, there was an economist there as well. Um, And, I, we, there was sort of a, we were just pondering if the Bank of Japan just ripped up all of the Japanese government bonds, all the government debt that it owns in its basement, right? And nobody said anything about it, right? It just, just deleted hundreds of billions of yen worth of debt, yeah. uh, just all by itself, and just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> Would anything actually change? If a tree falls and no one's here to hear it, does the tree actually fall? (laughs) If a debt is incinerated uh, and nobody knows it's been incinerated, would anything actually change? Uh, And the the answer I come to, even if they even if they did, and then they told everyone, I wonder if anything ultimately would actually change. Uh, And I don't think the answer is. I don't think much would change if it was just the Bank of Japan. So it wasn't any of the other bonds. It was just uh, it was just the Bank of Japan's bonds. If they and they have a very large store indeed of Japanese bonds, um, you know, would anything actually change? Probably not. I don't think so. Um, maybe maybe it would make people be a bit more hesitant uh, with with holding yen. Maybe, uh, but mm. I, I just don't I don't see how I don't I don't see how that if it was just the Bank of Japan that that deleted it. Or even if they deleted a bit of it, would it actually change stuff? And I think we may find out. We may find out actually in the future at some point, um, un- unless you know it's a, it's actually you know the Bank of Japan just keeps buying them because if it doesn't ultimately matter if you delete them, then it doesn't ultimately matter if you keep buying them really all that much either. You know, That's true. 
Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting how, like, when you again, the, the Japan's. I, I, I keep I keep seeing sort of parallels now with how the economy is going and and what the US is tracking towards, and with what Japan has done. But then, interestingly, when I think about the Japanese stock market as well, and a lot of the companies that you know people know about on the Japanese stock market, like the Japanese stock market is um, is huge, right? It's one of the, mm-hmm. still one of the biggest in the world, and people know of plenty of the names of the companies that are listed on the on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. You know, Panasonic, Sony, Toyota, uh, Fanuc, uh, Hitachi, SoftBank. You know, all these big global names. And when you actually look at how some of these stocks, Nintendo, you know, is another one, massive, you know, massive global companies, even with the Japanese economy basically up the shitter, um, there's still, the stock market still managed to do relatively well when you look to the, you know, the sectors that have been doing well over the last, you know, five or 10 years. So tech in Japan has continued to do really well, like Sony's at, you know, great heights and Nintendo's done exceptionally well. Um, the car companies have all sort of battled as you would find in the US. Most of the car companies, say for Tesla, but again, that's, that's an outlier, um, have struggled and the German automakers have struggled. So the stock market relative to the actual economy, there, it, there's, there's this real disjoint. Uh, you, you get the feeling of between how the sort of financial system all links together from uh, what happens from treasury and from central banks through to how that, you know, money flows to the government coffers and, and how they tax and, and raise, you know, either try and deliver surpluses or deficits. And then yet how that all then comes back into the actual stock market as well. And the performance of some of the companies that are in that stock market um, where, you know, that's, that's ultimately where investors, um, where the average person finds or, or, or seeks to find, um, you know, how these moves by government or central banks impact them. It doesn't, it doesn't flow to, you know, your paycheck necessarily, um, unless they root the economy so bad that you lose your job and then you don't have a paycheck. But effectively, when it comes to the stock market, that's where kind of people expect to see some sort of correlation between what happens in the economy. And there's just this massive disjoint that I don't think it's been this disjointed on this scale before. And, and, and that's what you see in the U S with, you know, the predominantly the tech sector, but you, you know, you're seeing NASDAQ pushing up to all time highs. Um, and it's just this, it's just this weird kind of, it, it feels like everything's getting concentrated into these tinier and smaller pockets of wealth um, that just don't don't seem to be reflecting out to 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 the average person, and that's where you start to find the social unrest. But Japan, Japan's its own quirk because because of its culture. But everywhere else, that continues to build, and there's this this weird underlying surge. And it keeps it feels like it's just continuing to bubble and bubble and bubble that people see these stock market returns. Most people aren't invested in the stock market and they're seeing the rich get richer. And, and it's, it's hard because, you know, we're all, I'm all about, you know, investing and, and building your wealth. And there are ways to do that in the stock market and people should be, but people don't. And then they, again, it's just this, it's this two speed, system is two-speed economy um where certain parts are moving much much faster and that's that that disparity between those levels i think it's just getting wider and 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 bigger and more separate and it i'm just it's hard to see how you wind it back to 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 good times if that makes sense yeah, there's a lot of different ways we could uh, we could go from there i think in Japan's case, it's another one of these sort of exceptional um, examples that you can look to because uh, while we can point to a roaring stock market in the US relative to an economy that uh, has had just an incredibly sharp contraction, Japan's stock market, the Nikkei, uh, you know, it's still nowhere near as high as it was um, in the late 80s. So, you know, that 
there are no new all-time highs going on there, and nor have there been anything close to the all-time highs that it reached back in the late 80s. So that, uh, that difference, um, you know, you can't, in Japan, you couldn't look to the stock market and say, look, investors are getting rich while everyone else is suffering as hell, because investors haven't recovered uh, since, uh, you know, they're, they're still bleeding. If you, if you were invested back then, you started investing in the late 80s, you'd still be well underwater now, even if you'd waited um, 30 years. So I think that it's interesting that uh, in places like the US where there is that big disconnect, in Japan, that disconnect with the stock market, when you know you can easily look at the stock market and see whether, how things are moving, you know, it's nothing like what's happened in the US. Um, and that, that difference comes back to a lot of, um, you know, it challenges a lot of your beliefs because, you know, for myself, I, uh, you know, I believe that, you know, QE definitely had a, a positive effect on equity prices, on stock prices in the US when the US rolled it out. And this was one of the key things that was driving uh, a recovery, this lowering of interest rates, which was increasing the value of future cash flows in, in stocks. And so people were buying them more, made them more valuable. But Japan was doing QE well before anybody else. And their stock market hasn't done anything like the Americans has, which makes you question whether or not QE had anything to do with stock prices whatsoever. Uh, which is, you know, for, uh, for uh, folks on the fringe like ourselves, this is you know, quite, a, quite a challenging thing because many people think of uh, QE as ultimately something that juiced the stock market and made, you know, the, the very wealthy much wealthier. Well, but Japan's been doing it for a long time and it wasn't making the Nikkei do that, that's for sure. And it still hasn't now. When, when, did uh, so Japan, I wonder, when did Japan start doing, when did they sort of start on their QE program though? Was it the 90s? Well, the, yeah, the, it goes down to what you uh, count as QE, I understand. So the, the actual definition of quantitative easing, I can give you a date. In terms of the, the Bank of Japan expanding its balance sheet, however, uh, they, they did that a lot. I think they were doing that a lot earlier than they were using the term QE. Uh, so just the, <laughs> yeah. but the expansion of, ba of a balance sheet, um, yeah, they were doing way earlier. Because you're right. I mean, you look at the Nikkei and, and the late 80s, and it was just, I mean, it was, it was like Tesla's stock price. It basically went vertical from the early 80s to the late 80s. Um, and then, yeah, uh, you know, crashed heavily. And, and then was just the, from the late 80s was in a downward spiral to basically, well, arguably 2012. Um, but, but, but recently, the Nikkei has actually been quite strong. Yeah, you know, when, yeah. when you consider, I mean, again, it's all, it's, it's perspective, right? If you're right, if, if you'd been all in and started investing in the late eighties, you're still kind of wrecked. Um, but if your entry point was the early eighties, you're laughing. Um, and likewise, you know, even after sort of that period in time, uh, the, the just really over the last five years, well, maybe a bit longer, maybe sort of six, seven years, um, in general, the, the, the Japanese markets have been not too bad a place to have some money. And oh, I think 100%. Really like, like I, um, I, I definitely, I, I think Japan is a, a very interesting place uh, for, as an investor. If you're looking for, um, if you're looking for value and if you, at the same time, especially if you fear deflation, if you yeah. think deflation is coming in any form to the global economy, then Japan is a place you go because these guys know how to survive deflation, right? There are companies there that have enough cash reserves that they could go without making a profit for a decade. And they, <laughs> they have enough that's, money now. That's a rainy day. That. Exactly. Right. So if you, if you want, if you want, so I, I see Japan as a very interesting place um, and it has all of this resilience, you know, they've been mm. dealing with deflation for years, right? You know, yeah, these stories of Japanese employees who expect a pay cut every year. You know, this is just part of the, you know, once it gets, uh, you know, once it's been 12 months since the last pay cut, you expect another pay cut because deflation is still pushing down on the economy. And they can, they can live with that. And, uh, you know, there, were, there was people who, who actually enjoy deflation because they, they actually like the idea that, well, I've got savings in the bank and the interest rate's awful. Because they're, you know, they've got negative interest rates in Japan, so yeah. the interest rate is still is still either zero or positive. It's not negative there for the for the uh, depositor, as I understand. But 
they like the idea that the cash under the mattress is gaining in value every single year. So it's like, this is a country, this is a developed nation that has learned to live with this problem of deflation. Maybe uh, that's why they're so, uh, such big fans of Bitcoin as well. Yeah, they will be. And of course, they're very tech savvy because it's an incredibly well-developed nation. Um, or, and maybe they, I say, you know, the problem of deflation. Uh, and, you know, some, you know, some folks in Japan, this isn't a problem at all. This is yeah. just reality. And there are ways of you know, profiting off of reality so that they're fine with it. I think my, I'm just giving the example with the Nikkei and the, it's, it's lack of ever recovering. It really doesn't feel, it's much harder to make the argument that wealth inequality, uh, well, not, well, not wealth inequality, but the, it's hard to make the argument that central bank excess in Japan has created the divergence in wealth if you're looking at stock prices in Japan, because yep. while stock prices have done all right, it's harder to make that argument. But maybe that is why we don't see riots in Japan, right? Maybe that is why we don't see um, yeah. the, the chaos that we've had. And of course, it's much more culturally, homo culturally homogenous, um, which obviously must have a, must have a huge, uh, yeah, huge, huge role to play. But I, it is... I wonder if it's what's if it's the chicken or the egg thing. So is it that QE causes uh, loads of chaos um, in Western countries, uh, or is it the QE never caused chaos at all? And in the countries that um, did it or didn't do it, it really just depends on the country. You know, uh, it makes yeah. Um, yeah, it makes you wonder. But uh, yeah, what, what do you make of uh, New Alliance anyhow? Because I'm uh, almost finished. It. Yeah, I'm back down to the bottom of this one as well. I can. I've I've got. Plenty of sediment in the bottom of my glass. Um, it's an interesting one. I, I, I've quite enjoyed this. So it's not particularly strong. I think it's only 4.5 ABV. Um, nice and crisp. It's, it's definitely got a bit of a, a sharper taste to it. Um, I haven't picked up any great sort of uh, particular fragrances or, or tastes from it. it it's... Um, it's almost what you'd call a session beer, <laughs> um, but it is right. fresh. I know, and I, to be fair, I've quite enjoyed drinking it, but it's not really kind of rocked my world. I've not sort of every time I have a have a sip, it's not like oh my god, that's you know, that's something quite unique. Um, but it is easy to drink. Uh, it's enjoyable to drink. It's crisp, um, which I quite like, um, but. You know, I'm sort of neither here nor there with it. I think I'd probably just give this a B, a B rating, a solid B for me. Yeah, I didn't get any sediment, sadly. I'm uh, I'm a little disappointed, to be honest with you. But, uh, <laughs> it does taste very nice, actually. Uh, very pleasant to drink. I think I could drink quite a few of those. Quite a few indeed, actually. It is very mild. The, yeah. uh, as you say, it, it kind of, yeah, it's... I, you know, you could drink an awful lot of that, I think. It's, it's 4.5%, um, and it tastes even lighter than 4.5%. And it's very gentle um, and, a, and a nice taste, nice nice and refreshing. Doesn't try to go uh, crazy when it comes to taste. Yeah, very pleasant indeed. Um, Some of you, it's not anything spectacular, and uh, it almost, you know, it almost gets that pejorative session beer <laughs> yeah. uh, label. But uh, I think I'd give us a B plus. I think I'd give that a B plus. Uh, I quite enjoyed that. Uh, and we are on to our second beer of the day, yeah, which I'm is one. I'm looking forward to this one. I'm not right. Remember. This is yeah. Lemon Posset, which is a sour beer, and it is made by the Cheshire Brew House. Now this is 4.2 percent. We are keeping it really quite low alcohol today, aren't we? Compared to last uh, week, we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is our. Uh, this is our. Easing off a week, I suppose. Yeah, well, last week, what was it, like 9% and 8.5 or something? Yeah. yeah. We I was uh, off my tits by the end of that episode. <laughs> <laughs> you need to drink more, mate. I know. Uh, I'm just not... I'm not I've, I've lost the touch. Uh, I think uh, many episodes ago, we, I think we spoke about the pot to fitness ratio. Indeed, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've fallen too far away from the sweet spot, I believe. This is a summer refresher inspired by a love of sherbet, sherbet uh, lemon sweets and creamy oh, yeah. lemon posset pudding. Kettle sour, then tempered with milk sugar and dry hop with lemon drop hops. 
That's interesting. Ah, so this contains lactose. I, I generally do not like beers that contain lactose. It'll be interesting to see how this, uh, how this plays out. Definitely um, getting some lemon sherbet off the uh, top of that for sure. Right. You know, do you remember those um, uh, little, do, I don't know if you had them in this country, probably they're just, they're just called sherbet bombs, right? Right. And they're basically just like a hard candy, but when you sort of chew them a bit, they go soft, but right in the guts is just this little bomb of sherbet that hits you when you crack through to yeah, it. Yeah. They're not that, called sherbet bombs, but yeah, we got them here. Yeah, that's definitely got some lemon sherbet bomb about it, which oh, yeah, I mean, to be boy. fair, does what it says on the tin, I suppose. Damn, smelling this thing, I can like you can immediately feel your uh, like your mouth secreting saliva. It's yeah, I'm 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 drooling right now. I'm I'm like a um a I'm like a Saint Bernard that's yeah, about to go rescue somebody uh it's, it's just pull droplets of it on my desk <laughs> right. i call it a saint bernard not a saint bernard. <laughs> saint bernard i've been watching too much um westworld with that bloke with the character bernard and it's like well i, I mean you know, i'm australian so it is it's bernard but i've enjoyed westworld so much that now everyone called bernard is just called bernard yeah, that's funny actually, because I, uh, I have a similar experience where uh, there was a, a video game called Infamous Two, which came out on PS3 a very long time ago. But there's a there's a villain in that game uh, called Bert Bertrand, right? It's not it's it's even though it would be Bertrand, it's yeah. pronounced in the game because it's set in the states as Bertrand, right? And I was playing that video game prior to. Uh, studying philosophy a little bit when we were at school it was just one of these subjects that you could take and there is a uh, there's a you know famous philosopher called bertrand bertrand russell but because i played this game i i called him bertrand russell so it was like yeah <laughs> you even added the russell to it as yeah, well yeah no, right <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> pretty, pretty ridiculous but a similar similar anecdote now anyway, everybody that everyone called Russell is just going to be Russell. Russell, Russell, yeah. <laughs> Bertrand Russell. Yeah, actually, you know what? Speaking of, so speaking of video games, right? I don't know if you've seen uh, on Netflix. There's a new um, uh, docu series kind of thing called I think it's called High Score that goes back and looks through the evolution of, of video games. And um, with that it, it i mean i was talking to my brother and a, and a close mate of mine about this because we grew up um you know we were i was born in the early 80s so we grew up with the commodore 64 and, and, and atari and the original you know nintendo entertainment system and the super nintendo and the sega mega drive and the master system and the genesis and the dreamcube and the you know the the real console wars of the 90s and then sony ironically the japanese giant sony coming onto the scene with the release of the playstation and then just since that dominating, dominating console yeah. sales um and and will continue to do so with the upcoming release of the playstation 5 um with their only sort of competitors in the console space now are nintendo that, that had a hugely successful console with the wii and then a hugely not so successful with the wii u but then the hugely successful Switch. So you've got Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft, Microsoft, obviously, with Xbox. But it sort of seems now like Microsoft isn't really that fussed about Xbox sales, but wants to really get into sort of streaming game delivery through PC and, and uh, mobile and things like that. So that, that's an interesting development in that space, which sort of means that you think that Sony is probably going to benefit from uh, video game console sales, but that that industry is it's, as well um, is going through some pretty serious change when it comes to how it's structured, and there's there's a lot of investment angles in there as well, which I find fascinating because yep. when you wind back to the you know early days of the Nintendo and consoles and things like that, games weren't connected, they weren't online, so you bought the console you went to the shop and you bought the game. And so the companies were making money off of game sales that sort of they had in house or that they bought from developers. And then obviously the consoles and the accessories, but now it's games are, are pretty much platform agnostic. So 
you know, a game like Fortnite is on all platforms, including mobile. And what happened recently was that um, Epic Games, the developer of Fortnite, that's partly owned, so Epic Games is actually partly owned by another Japanese company, SoftBank. Um, and so what happened is that Fortnite got kicked off the Apple and Google store because of, I think we might have talked about this a bit last week, but around not, around being paid directly and circumventing the Apple uh, App Store payment system. And so there's been this really big legal challenge between them, between Epic Games and these platforms and these app stores um, about the right to be on them the control of, of who gets access to them and then how they get paid and who gets paid and how that all works. Because Apple's, a lot of Apple's fortune really isn't about their devices as much as it is the money that they generate from their app store. Um, and so it's this, this huge melting pot of, of, of gaming happening right now as to how, how should game developers get paid who are the real power brokers when it comes to gaming? Because gaming is really starting to become, I mean, I, I, I say a serious industry. It's always been a serious industry, but it's never really caught the mainstream in the way that it perhaps should. Everyone knows about video games, but from an investment point of view, some people kind of turn their nose up when it comes to video games or, or video game developers or console developers and, and particularly even with things like esports now. A lot of investors turn their nose up at esports because they really carry this sort of preconceived idea of the 80s and 90s that it's just, you know, people sitting around playing consoles. But it's a much bigger thing than that. And you see that with the, the, the development and the money that Fortnite's generated. Animal Crossing for uh, Nintendo has been massive as well and a huge win for them as a company. And then even a new one, I think it's called Fall Guy or Drop Something. No, it's, uh, um, the Fall Guys, yeah. Yeah, the Fall Guys, which again seems to be one of these kind of viral games that's just all of a sudden exploded out of nowhere. You know, and there are all these connected games that you can play pretty much on anything, anywhere. And now that these game developers are actually getting bigger and more powerful than the companies that end up hosting the games they're on. And so I just think we were kind of coming to this, it's, not, it's, it's a bit like the console wars of the 90s but it's almost like it's a developers versus um, platforms, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's going to throw up some real opportunities for, for game developers coming to market um, with really big successful titles and then going on to develop other titles. So it's an interesting yeah, space. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of the, um, of the sort of more miniature, um, conflict that's been going on uh, for, for quite a while now, but between content creators and the platforms which host them. So Twitter and YouTube immediately come to mind with YouTube uh, messing around with ad revenue and yeah. who can host what, what you can say in videos and still get ad revenue. Twitter uh, going just incredibly, um, uh, going down the censorship route with uh, what they deem to be appropriate and inappropriate content when it comes to when you're commenting on politics uh, and there's that big clash and everyone always wonders well what some of these content creators are so big what if they made their own version of youtube or twitter or whatever yeah. uh, and it's never been able to materialize no one's ever actually been able to do it um and it's sort of like that that's that sort of a miniature version of what's now going on between these game developers and the platforms that host them uh, or game developers and the publishers uh, game publishers and the, and the plat platforms which host them. It'll be interesting to see how that all turns out. The, uh, it does seem like for Microsoft, uh, going back to your um, previous sort of uh, history of, uh, of the game uh, console development wars, it does seem like they made a big misstep with the Xbox One where they, uh, they were trying to be a bit ahead of the curve where they said, well, you'll only be able to use the Xbox One if you have an internet connection. And the PlayStation 4, which was its rival coming out at the same time, uh, did not require that. Yeah. And uh, the gentleman, as I recall, who was in, in control of the development of the Xbox One said, we have, we have a console that works without an internet connection. It's called 
the X, you know, the Xbox. Um, what was it? The three uh, Xbox three sixty. Three sixty, yeah. Uh, which was the previous version. So just saying, if you don't have an internet connection, well, you know, you can just use our old one, which of course isn't nearly as exciting. And this got a huge amount of stick from a lot of folks. And of course, he was, he was, uh, you know, in a way, he was a bit ahead of his time because ultimately, all of these devices. Uh, in in the developed world, at least, are, are you know it's very you know, it's very common for everyone to just use an internet connection because the whole sharing community side of it is uh, uh, has become bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but of course, if you go to more emerging marketplaces where they do sell these devices, uh, that's not really quite it's not really quite the same relationship. Uh, but the Xbox One, uh, while the three six five and the PlayStation Three, the previous two warring platforms seem to be almost on even even uh, match. Uh, it was after that the the X Bone, as it ended up becoming uh, called, uh, you know, just uh, my Microsoft doesn't seem to have recovered quite so much. But that's just my uh, that's just my observation from where it is. So, like, when it comes to the game development space, uh, you're familiar with uh, Ubisoft, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I think Ubisoft as a brand. If we take away the the game development narrative, uh, you know, entirely, if, even if you're not interested in video games and you're just looking at uh, shares and stocks and things. I see the example of Ubisoft as one of the key reasons that you should be very, very worried if a private equity company yeah. starts taking a serious interest and acquiring a serious interest in, in a company that you are invested in. Like this is, you know, just a, the, the Ubisoft, which was one of the, uh, you know, the pioneers of making very good and very successful video games like Prince of Persia, uh, and, and then uh, carried on with Assassin's Creed and things like that. Uh, when you know, when that it was, a, it was a European private equity firm. I forget their name. It's a, it's a it's a single word and it's like a venti or something. Uh, when they took that large stake, they were the ones who just immediately wanted a return on their investment, like mm. right this second. Yeah. They just forced uh, all of these microtransactions and early release schedules which led to these games being released that were around with uh, you know, appeals to the player to give the developer money for some kind of upgrade, uh, while at the same time being broken, and you know, having these ridiculous glitch videos that you could watch on YouTube on how broken the game was because <laughs> they hadn't spent enough time uh, you know, actually fixing it because they were trying to make a deadline like Christmas or something. And it always seems to me like Ubisoft uh, you know, is nowhere near its all-time highs. Uh, but it was when the private equity guys started getting involved with this that things really started to become, you know, to go downhill. And the games themselves just started losing their quality. Uh, were, were you sort of spectating that as well, Sam? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where when you get people involved in a company like that that don't really understand the sort of the the ethos and the the aura that the company is sort of built on that, you know, developing games and, and, and creating new worlds and, and they want just a, an economic return on their investment. Then you start to lose that. The, the soul, you start to lose the soul of the company is what I was trying to say. And with, with something like game developers, it's all, that's what it's all about. If you don't have that core soul, then you very quickly lose the ability to create the kinds of games that made that company popular in the first place. You know, when you look at a company like, like EA games, right, is another, is a huge company, Activision Blizzard as well. Um, again, again, huge gaming companies. Ubisoft to be fair in its own right is still a huge gaming company, but it's not anything close to what it once was. And it, the gaming industry is interesting because it can be fickle. And you do very quickly see companies come in and out of popularity, depending on the kinds of games that they do. Companies like EA and like um, uh, Activision Blizzard, so they obviously merged. They used to be two separate companies. But the kind of games that they make, they've got quite a long history of, of particular genres and, and do that space very well. And, you know, remember a couple of years back, there was a huge um, surge in popularity in gaming companies when, um, and, you know, it was uh, Zynga or Zynga, I can never pronounce the word. That was, with, yeah, Zynga with a Y, right? Zynga and, and uh, King Entertainment as well, which King eventually got bought by... By Blizz, yeah. I think they got bought by Activision, was it Activision Blizzard? Yeah, Activision Blizzard, yeah. Um, but then, you know, because King had Candy Crush... Uh, Zynga's got uh, Farmville. There was Rovio as well that obviously did Angry Birds. 
and I can't remember who owns part of them now. But so you have these, you know, sometimes you have these windows of opportunities in gaming where on on the release of a, of a new hugely popular game and then possibly a sequel, you know, you can really see great value being created, like Epic Games as well. So Fortnite has, has been one of the most successful games of all time um, for Epic Games. But the question is, is can they repeat that again? Because Fortnite won't be around, you know, it won't be the, the top of the pile forever. Um, and so now you wonder, you know, is there, is there value in that? Is to do, do, do SoftBank derive value from that? Do they sell that off to private equity or, or someone else? And then, like you say, then you start to lose the solar company and these, the, the values of these companies can, can peak and trough pretty quickly. And the same for a company like Nintendo, right? It was languishing after the Wii. After the, 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 the stock did really well with the release of the Wii, then just languished for years in the Wii U and it was in the doldrums. And then when the Switch came out and it was wildly successful and Nintendo's just gone from, went from strength to strength. Um, so it, it, it can be a fascinating market to actually trade positions in and out of if you kind of know the nuances of game releases and the kinds of popularities that the games can create and or the release of consoles and how those consoles could perform in the market um, based on the competitors releasing things because they all kind of release stuff around about the same time albeit nintendo kind of beats marches to the beat of their own drum so i i, I love it as an industry gaming and um, gaming technology and consoles because if you really get the nuts and bolts of it you can move in and out of positions and make some pretty good money in the in the market from them yeah yeah there's uh it is a fascinating industry and it does seem like one which has been um quite yeah it's still it, and it continues to be i think uh, maligned to some degree similar to what you were saying with that perception from the 80s and 90s that it's generally just a game for uh, you know people who are at school or uh, yeah. you know, just kids who are just living um you know just at their computer screen and playing whatever and not 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 really seeing the uh, the money making opportunity these these content platforms Actually, provide. I'll, I'll give you one more example about about that about sort of the ignorance that sort of people have a little bit about gaming is that one of the um, there's a an esports team I think it's KC esports or something like that, but it's one of the biggest esports teams there is, and so it's it's private, but there's been so much. Um, venture capital and early stage investor money from you know celebrity investors and sports stars and all that sort of mix but esports is one of those realms that still people just go video games aren't sports are uh, it's such a stupid industry it's like you completely miss the point about what esports is developing into and the sort of bigger picture is that it's not necessarily about the games anymore. It's about people that watch these people play and then things like advertising revenues that flow from that and sponsorship money and all these other ancillary industries that tack on when you've got eyes on uh, events like this. So esports is just another reason uh, that I think, you know, gaming is, is really a space that investors should really be paying a lot of attention to. Yeah, there's uh, the phenomenon of esports. Yeah, it's very, it's crazy the kind of checks these guys who play video games at a professional level are now making. You know, looking at uh, games like Dota 2, the people who are, uh, you know, the people who are playing that at a really high level are earning, um, you know, footballer salaries easily, uh, plus in some in some cases. I wonder, I wonder how it all. You know, what will be the event that makes these companies um, as idolized as much as the other tech companies are? Because I, I, you know, that that boom for the likes of uh, mobile gaming companies. When you said uh, earlier that it was a it was a big fad for uh, video video games, you know, became in vogue. All of those companies that you mentioned were all mobile gaming companies. Ultimately, those are yep. the ones that attracted all of the interest. It wasn't the uh, what would be classed as hardcore gaming or AAA gaming uh, uh, companies that received that. It was because people saw people playing Candy Crush on public transport or uh, during their work break and things like that that I think made them quite so successful. I wonder if there if there's going to be some kind of 
uh, event or uh, a trend that will occur where uh, these companies like Activision Blizzard begin getting the kind of crazy valuations that uh, the other tech titans make um, it, you know, at some point in the future. I wonder if that'll be an event or if it'll be maybe when Activision Blizzard starts getting so large that it starts taking over even more mainstream internet services as well. It, uh, uh, Blizzard um, does seem like one of those companies that you really wish you'd been early on. I mean, yeah. they're, the, uh, they're the guys behind World of Warcraft. And yeah. uh, in a way, they're, they're, in a way they're, they're more than just a gaming company because they're one of the first companies that saw the real appeal of the subscription-based digital model. So it's a, a business that um, figured out that if you charge people every month, it's actually a much more successful venture than asking somebody to pay upfront for a video game that you never actually receive another payment from again. Uh, and of course, they're also the ones ahead of the network effect when it comes to people uh, playing video games together. Uh, so you, play, you pay your subscription to World of Warcraft and then you'd uh, get together with your mates on the, over the internet and you'd complete some quests together and you'd join a guild and things like that. Like that. And you'd have a, an obligation to your guild to keep playing the game effectively every day uh, and this, of course, ruined many people's lives and their student <laughs> careers, not all manner of stories you hear like that. Uh, you know, there was, a, there was a friend of mine who just said, uh, uh, you know, just knew, knew people who once they started it, you know, they just vanished. You know, they weren't at any social events anymore. They weren't, uh, they weren't communicating to their friends anymore. They were all just stuck with their virtual friends. Uh, you know, grinding on World of Warcraft. <laughs> but I mean, Blizzard, uh, the company behind it, was really ahead of the curve when it comes to that subscription model, really yeah. harvesting the subscription model. Uh, and at the same time, that social media model as well, because it was a network one. So even though it's not uh, that sexy of a name, they really were ahead of the times. I mean, all of the internet companies, all of the digital companies are trying to adopt a subscription model. Even all, even everyday things, I feel like things like coffee and razors, People yeah. are now trying to get uh, a subscription model for it. But, you know, wow, back in the day, uh, these, these guys were the first guys there. Uh, it's really quite, uh, it's quite incredible just how far ahead of that they were because the game's been around now for like, you know, decades. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Wait, I remember some of my favorite games on the Super Nintendo were um, like Blizzard games. And, you know, you don't, you don't think back then in the sort of early mid-90s when you're, uh, 10 12 years old that they're gonna this company's gonna go on to be you know a, a, a giant of industry and things like that you just kind of i think it was um the lost vikings was was the one that, that was that was one of my favorite games on the super nintendo is little three little sort of viking dudes and you kind of climb up with this anyway it's just, it's just crazy stuff and oh you're right you know world of warcraft went on is still one of the biggest games ever made diablo was another um blizzard game um, yep. and Activision as well in their own right were huge right and and now yeah and the, but the way that the, the, these companies have been around for so long but evolved and like you say you know this this idea of the subscription model now really being the way forward is is absolutely right and, and like you say it's not just gaming that subscription models are becoming a thing for even even car ownership is now moving to subscription models so the very idea of and concept of of how we sort of um, use these services or platforms or products and subscribe to them and own them or whether we do or don't own and or you know have become members to something to get stuff out it's it's, it's a it's a real shift in in how you know not just gaming operates but just how sort of we operate in the whole you know world and how we consume goods and services going forward so it's it's interesting and and the you funnily enough the gaming industry has been a leader in that uh in that development and and it's it's worth looking to them to get an idea about you know what what does the model evolve to and what does it become because they're quite often sort of leaders in that field because you know you're, you're talking about companies that are primarily built and driven by very technologically savvy people that see and understand the sort of nuts and bolts of their industry but you know overall how technology works you know they they understand and get what the latest stuff that comes out of nvidia or amd does because they're the ones that use the latest stuff to build the next generation games and so they do sort of sit gaming companies at the 
at the forefront of technology and, and, and how it progresses and what comes next and how they adapt their business models to that can be a good indicator of how other industry will then eventually follow as well. So it can be somewhat leading a leading indicator when, it, when you look to other sort of tech-based industries for that as well. Yeah, that, that um, the essence of being uh, a native of technology. If, you, if your business is completely existent in the, uh, in the internet and tech space, the, uh, the, applications, uh, the applications for what that tech can do, um, all, the, all those folks who work there, there must be a huge amount of interoperability between their industry and all the other tech sectors. You know, the people who are high up in, in uh, the likes of Activision Blizzard, they yeah. probably have an awful lot of application to any of the other Silicon Valley firms. Well, you, you know, that? sometimes they get, so they get um, product releases from big companies like AMD before AMD even announced them to market. So because if you're working on next con, if the, um, say like the PlayStation 5 games, they've actually been working on those games for, you know, a couple of years but they've only been able to do that because they've received the technology from companies like AMD that have been developing for, you know, so they're always a generation ahead because when the PlayStation five comes out, they're already developing the PlayStation six, for example, and the technology that's needed for that is being, you know, prototyped and, and, and proof of concept and all that sort of stuff, but being tested by the AMDs and NVIDIAs uh, of the world now. And so they haven't, you know, got them completely dialed in yet, but that sort of tech is being developed and is existing. And then that flows to the game developers as they build the next um, generation games as well. So it's always a step ahead, but you just never quite know it until you start to hear little rumors pop out. Um, and, you know, sometimes leaks come out of particular games or, particular technologies that come out of it. And so that technology then flows out into other things like social media and, and, and other forms of, you know, connected services and, and applications and things like that. So I often look to gaming and what's happening in the gaming space when I'm trying to understand what's happening with, um, you know, the major semiconductor companies and things like that. Yeah, it does seem like a forward indicator in many ways, um, especially when, and during lockdown, of course, these companies have done incredibly well from uh, people sitting at home and, uh, you know, just playing a lot of video, really. Um, but Sam, I'm actually finished my lemon posset. Have you finished yours? Uh, yeah, I'm literally about a, a sip behind you. So uh, maybe, what, maybe we'll go with your rating on this one uh, first up and what you think. Right, yeah, lemon possets are. Uh, I'm impressed uh, as this contains lactose and it actually tastes pretty good. Uh, so I generally don't like lactose in beer, but uh, this time around, I actually don't really taste it all that much. And it does taste like lemon sherbet, I would say. just tastes like you're drinking lemon sherbet. Uh, it does not taste strong whatsoever. You can no. drink an awful lot of this unless uh, they, maybe you get like a, a tongue ulcer or something because it is really quite <laughs> sweet now. Uh, so you could drink a lot of this before you got drunk, but your, uh, your, your tongue would probably complain before that point. Uh, however, it is, um, yeah, it is quite tasty and it's quite refreshing. Uh, nothing, nothing crazy for me. Uh, I think I'll give this a B because it is, uh, you know, fine, upstanding beer. It doesn't uh, blow the doors off, but uh, yeah, so it's pretty good beer. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, so for me, I actually really I like sour beer for some reason. I don't know why, but um, it tends to uh, some reason it just it hits the the taste buds in a way that other beers don't, which I quite enjoy, and so. I like to be pretty critical of my sours and I've had a couple before uh, sort of a peach style sour and tropical sours, but the, I've not had one that's almost a pure lemon sour, but that is, that is good. It, it's definitely got the lemon sherbet tang to it. Um, I don't think it's overly sweet though. It's definitely, definitely got a more sour to it, which it should be. Um, and it doesn't, it's not heavy at all. Like you say, you could drink, quite a lot of those and and be pretty happy about it uh, do you know what uh, these two actually pair really well together i could kind of go one for one new alliance lemon posset new alliance lemon posset and yep, kind of keep that good. going for a, for a long time they actually drink really well together I, I've, I've found yeah um, they're both very mild and the uh, the new alliance one isn't nearly so sweet or sour so it would uh, counteract it very, counteract it very well 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I think if you did drink too many sours straight after sort of each other, if you had, you know, three or four of these, it might start to sort of grind you away a little bit. But I think if you alternate it with something like a new alliance that is is quite, you know, crisp and refreshing and and not too heavy, that they kind of work well together. But I really enjoyed it. So the lemon posset for me, this is going to be a bit of a divergence in uh, ratings for us, mate. Oh. But, uh, I'm, I'm going to throw this right up there because I do love a sour beer and that's, that's pretty good for me. And I'm going to give this a double B. Oh, wow. Damn. Yeah. I do see, I do see what you mean with the, uh, with just the way it tastes. You could, it really does taste like sherbet, you know, this is a, a sherbet beer. That's yeah. the closest. It's quite simple in, in terms of what it tastes like. There's not, not a crazy amount of things it's trying to do. Uh, just a, a purist lemon <laughs> approach. Uh, but that it's a good one. That, that was a winner. Any uh, any closing remarks to finish this podcast, Sam? No, we covered quite a lot today, actually. Um, a bit of a Japanese focus uh, and and related entities with that. But yeah. um, you know, it's been another you know pretty pretty funny week out in the world, and um, you know, it's it's nice at the end of the week to have a couple of beers, sort of get it all out there see what's what but um you know it can get it can get a little stressful when you look at the news and you look at social media and you see a lot of sort of the the negative stuff being put out there but um there's still a lot of a lot of fun stuff (laughs) to be done to be had like having having some beers on a friday so anyway people listening you know if you if you get a little get a little sour about uh the world have a lemon posset and a new alliance and, and maybe things might start looking up again yeah, words to live by, words to live by. I think it's been, uh, yeah, this has been quite an interesting conversation. We have gone really all over the place with, you know, intelligence agencies and the six eyes all the way through to uh, through to video games and microtransactions and private equity. I think it's been a pretty broad conversation, but no, it was a good couple of beers, good chat. Uh, so I think we'll we'll call this one uh, call this one a day. But that was the uh, the twelfth episode of Booze, Booms, and Busts. If you are listening to this, hope you're having a good time. Hope you're having a uh, and you are going to have a good weekend. Uh, but we shall be back again next week, and we'll hope you'll we'll see you there. See you later.